And now on BBC Radio 4, the last programme in the series where writer John Ronson explores the human condition. This week he looks at how to build bridges. I'm on holiday in Italy and I've gone for a treacherous and gruelling two-hour cliff-top walk. Ahead of me I hear American voices. There's a group of them. They look ex-military, in their fifties, big and muscular, some with handlebar moustaches, relaxing in a shady glen. One is blocking my way, his back to me. <clears throat> I say. He turns around. You want to get past? He growls. You need to pay a toll. I am paying, I say, in sweat. They laugh heartily. You can say that again, he says. This banter's going extremely well, I think, pleased with myself. I'm really building bridges here. Little do I know that my attempts at bridge building are soon to go terribly wrong. What makes someone a good bridge builder? Nowadays, Jesse Armstrong writes comedy, like the show The Thick of It, but he used to work for a Labour MP back when they were in opposition. Jesse's job was to wheel and deal for his MP, form contacts, build bridges, try and get his man to the top. Jesse was not a good bridge builder. His MP was called Doug Henderson. And your job really was to build bridges. You were trying to ingratiate both yourself and your MP. Yeah, in a way, you're meant to be their eyes and ears and also to help them in their political career as much as you can. Help them move upwards. Yeah, if you can. And, you know, I really was no use whatsoever at that. I was, you know... Were you trying to do it? I was sort of trying to do it, but I couldn't very well, you know, affect meetings with Tony Blair from my MP because I could really not get anyone to have lunch with me. So I was not an effective greasy pole climber. How did you fail to get people to have lunch with you? I just felt out of place. I think a lot of people who go into politics like that have done all the political stuff at university and have these connections, and they love that world. And I felt really just like somebody in the playground who hasn't got a gang. It's, it's quite a cruel world, politics, in that respect, I think. But, you know, anyone can have lunch with someone. Yeah, right. well, theoretically, but, you know, if you walk into the canteen, is it so easy to have lunch with anyone? Hi, how are you doing? I'm... I'm interested in social policy. It's the, it's. <laughs> uh, yeah, I didn't find it that easy. Would you literally sit alone in the canteen? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I yeah, yeah, definitely. And was there sort of space of failure, you know, around, <laughs> around me, a bad odor? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think I then. I think I took to taking my as social misfits through the ages have done. I took to taking my sandwich to my desk. <laughs> <laughs> and was your MP sitting there thinking he's not doing, he's not doing anything for me? <laughs> well, you know, there are a lot of jobs to do outside of trying to curry favour, and I think I probably did the letter writing and the and the research okay, but I was clearly never going to say, you know, hey, I've got us invites to the Fabian party at the conference. Can you think of somebody who was just brilliant at it? Can you yeah. can you think of some people from your well, the people who were around who were good at it were Derek Draper, who's famously Mandelson's researcher. I was completely obsessed with politics from the age of about eleven and desperately wanted to become the Prime Minister. This is Derek Draper. 
Derek was to Peter Mandelson what Jesse was to Doug Henderson. Derek sat in the office next to Jesse. Although I think at the time I probably wanted to become leader of the Labour Party. I mean, Michael Heseltine famously wrote his political career on the back of an envelope when he was quite young. I didn't even have to write it down and set off to do it from quite an early age. And that involved meeting as many people as possible because you didn't know where you might end up. I had several political heroes. One of them was Roy Hattersley and one of them was Lyndon Johnson from America. And Lyndon Johnson famously used to brush his teeth five times every morning. This was because in the boarding house where he lived, so did all the other legislative aides that worked on Capitol Hill. And Lyndon Johnson realised that every morning when he brushed his teeth he could say hello to the guy on the left and the guy on the right. And so he used to go in first thing in the morning, clean his teeth, make two friends, go in about half an hour later and make two more throughout the morning. And Lyndon Johnson ended up knowing every single researcher, as we call them, on Capitol Hill within about a month. And I never went quite that far, but that was the mentality that I had in my mind, that if you wanted to meet people, you had to make an effort. I think the crucial thing in bridge building, you see, is you don't have to be nice. What you have to do is want to bridge build, because I knew that that was politics. Uh, for example, getting to know the Fabian Society and thought, oh, the Fabian Society, they have votes, you know, they have influence, i better get to know them. And so I turned up and I think I helped carry a box once at some conference to the stall and the woman nearly fell over. And then she said, oh, you must come in for a cup of tea. And I went in for a cup of tea. And within about six months, I was secretary of the Young Fabians nationally. Can you remember any incidents where instead of sitting alone at lunch, yeah. you would try but fail. Yeah, I remember being at the Labour Party conference and it felt very school playgroundish because I accidentally or foolishly bought a yellow tie. I'd gone to Blackpool without a tie and I had to buy one. And I bought a yellow one and then sort of getting picked on by a bunch of people who were saying, you know, you look like a Liberal Democrat. Why are you wearing a yellow tie? Um, thinking, yeah, again, why am I wearing a yellow tie? But on the other hand, why can't you wear a yellow tie? Do you, if I got to wear a red tie forever, or you know, <laughs> if you understand politics and you have a very thick skin, you'd give as good as you got back. You'd make a mental note not to wear a yellow tie again, or you'd come up with something so funny and clever that you know the conversation moved on quite quickly. If you have a very sensitive disposition, and if somebody sort of takes the piss out of your tie, you get sort of upset about it. And when it doesn't stop because everyone's still having a go at you a couple of minutes later, you slope off and decide, oh you know, you're not really welcome and so you better go and spend your time eating fish and chips on the prom or in the arcade, then you won't build many bridges because actually the six people taking the piss out of your tie were six potential contacts. I remember being also at the conference and I had no gossip, I had no currency to sort of join in so I'd slope off and kind of go and play video games at the end of the pier and feel a bit wistful. You'd sneaked away and played... Oh, yeah, I uh, frequently snuck away instead, <laughs> instead of being at the, uh, the... I guess it's the Imperial Hotel and... Uh, You'd go to the pier. I'd go to the opposite the pier to some arcade machines and kind of... <laughs> what games would you play? I was, I was keen on Lethal Enforcer, if you know it, uh, quite a a brutal shoot-em-up shoot, shoot em up kind of... Uh, yeah, that, that would definitely kill a few hours instead of <laughs> trying to talk about Bosnia. <laughs> so they're all trying to stop the fighting 
in the interim. <laughs> I wasn't in favour of the fighting. You just enjoyed <laughs> I just had nothing <laughs> interesting to say about it. Okay. You just enjoyed the kind of virtualness of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. After his political career, Derek Draper trained as a psychotherapist. I think that studying psychology and being a therapist, you are massively aware of how difficult it is for lots of people to build genuine bridges. Relationships of real intimacy where you are really being you and the other person is really being them and that connection is a very real one. What's interesting is that it doesn't actually matter if you can't do that in politics. Now, there's a fantastic old analyst who's now dead called Donald Winnicott, and he invented a concept called the false self. And I believe that what happens with a lot of politicians is, very early on, they develop a very sophisticated, effective false self. Everyone does that to an extent. You know, you go to your work's do and chat to the guy that you don't like in accounts. But in politics, it's systematic if you're doing it properly. And I think it becomes a mask that's, I think, to paraphrase John Updike on celebrity, it's a, it's a mask that eats into the face. And you end up as a politician not really being intimate with anybody, not really having any proper real friends, but just having all of these relationships that actually, of course, and that is the key to understanding it, are no more genuine on the other person's side than they are on yours. That was Jesse Armstrong and Derek Draper. Jesse remembers Derek well, but although they worked in adjoining offices, Derek says he can't quite place Jesse. Back in Italy, on my gruelling two-hour cliff walk, I continue to banter with the American ex-soldiers I've encountered. My Special Forces training down at Fort Bragg has certainly stood me in good stead. For this walk, I say, they laugh a lot. You ever see combat? One asks. Nam, I say. Yeah, Saigon. They laugh uproariously. I'm doing brilliantly, I think. It's like I'm building bridges between America and Europe. You got anything to sell? One of them asks, glancing at my plastic bag. I got shawls, I say. What? he says. Lovely shawls, I say. You want cheap price? The Americans descend into a baffled silence. I don't get it. The shawl banter is, to my mind, just as funny as the Nam banter. He turns to his friend. What's he saying? he asks. Dunno. Something about shawls, his friend replies. Have you got anything to sell me in that plastic bag? He asks me again. Suddenly it dawns on me. This isn't an invitation for me to continue bantering. It is a coded request for drugs. They think I'm a dope dealer. No, I haven't, I say, sounding hurt. I storm off down the path. Americans, I inwardly mutter, subjugating me. The gardener Tom Hart Dyke found himself and his friend Paul surrounded by strangers in camouflage when they were in the middle of nowhere, orchid hunting in Colombia in 2000. 
just stormed in front of us in the combat fatigues, three or four of them, with M16s and AK-47s, and me and Paul didn't need knocking on the floor, we just sort of fell on our hands and knees, and all the stuff was taken from us, our rucksacks that we had, and knapsacks and so on, and tied up, and they forced us back to the path we were coming. So what, from. they tied your hands behind Yeah, you? behind my back. It just seemed perhaps that was going to be the last day of our lives. I've never felt so terrified. You know, I was literally sheet white. So what, they walked you back with the guns pointed at you yeah. to, to their camp? It was to a camp. It was a disused camp. And then they marched us into, into Panama. We actually were going in Panama to the cloud forest areas. They hid us for further six, seven weeks in Panama, high up in the cloud forest, quite cold at night. But that was their mistake. You should never take Tom to the cloud forest. Why? <laughs> orchids were just everywhere, dripping from the tree. I saw more orchids in captivity than actually before we got ambushed. So I'd said, just before my birthday, I'm going on an armed orchid patrol, please. And they went, oh. So they consulted with the commandant, who reluctantly agreed. So they thought we'd better let him do his orchid hunting. Yes, the foot soldiers followed me about. And they hate orchids now. <laughs> Spent five... Well, the kidnappers hate orchids. Definitely. I Why? Mean, well, I was trying to explain to them what the floral sepals and petals were on the orchid and what shape it was and the new species to, to, to be found here. And I brought the orchids back to the camp and set up a miniature Kew Gardens, the orchid unit there. And you it just was bored just... bored them? Just completely bored them. And they, they were kicking the orchids about, pouring petrol on some of the orchids. Kids, they got so fed up with them, and they're never going to take English gardeners hostage again. That is one thing for sure. It was my way of dealing with it. I have to say, I mean, it was just we were going to die, and they told us we were going to die, and it was just my way of sort of was what I'm about, and, and they weren't going to stop me, sort of thing. Tom and Paul were held hostage for nine months. The question was, how could they build bridges with people crazy enough to be kidnappers? These were not rational people. There was little common ground for bridge building. So one moment when you thought to yourself, it's going to be quite difficult to build bridges with these people because they're just so weird, was when they had a competition about who could hit the head against the wall the hardest? That's right, it was against the frame of a door, basically. Did somebody say, I've got an idea? They just suddenly started doing it. <laughs> well, somebody must have said. Someone perhaps said, let's have a competition or something, let's get together. And we all started running towards this door frame and jumping up. They all missed it clearly, except for one big black stocky bloke at the end who knocked the whole house down, blood from his head and all sorts. And it was like, yes, I've done it. He didn't literally knock um, the house down. No, but the whole thing shuddered. And it's so difficult to establish any relationship with them at all if they're going to do all this random behaviour. So to um, actually just do it was the thing, not to do it the hardest, but just to, to do, do it. To do it, but I mean, it seemed to be the hardest. If you could do it and hit it the hardest, you were definitely the man for the day. All the, lady, all the ladies were joining in as well. And no one really achieved it except for the guy at the end, and he whacked the whole beam. Was there blood um, coming out of it? Yeah, he'd really clonked his head all right, absolutely. And was see, he happy? Delighted. What delighted he about his performance. He's like, yes, I'm the winner. El Ganadore, I'm the winner. And me and Paul just looked at each other for the first time, had sort of tears coming down our cheeks. A combination of things. Laughter, weirdness, fear. How do you react to this? It was impossible to try and form any real relationship with them at all if they were just going to continue to be this random. It was just extraordinary, extraordinary experience. So when they first captured you, you were just some sort of, some kind of blob that could possibly make them money. Yeah, That's I mean, all that you were to It was a white, white face, a, yeah. a white face. I think it's sim simple as that. So it must have crossed your mind early on or at some point, I've got to become more 
human to them. The orchid thing was just what I wanted to do. I really wanted to see the orchid. It's a good opportunity to do it before I die. And the human bonding thing, I mean, it, it really didn't work. I mean, we did, me and Paul did try as a tactic to try and get their human side. But you'd only be talking to the foot soldiers, if you like, trying to sort of think, right, they won't shoot us because we've had a little chat to them. But it was pointless because the commandant would come over and say, these guys, Tom and Pablo, CIA, they're drug traffickers. And the guys would say, right, let's kill them tomorrow. So all that effort's completely wasted. So me and Paul just gave up completely. After a while, Tom did the only thing he knew how to do, which was garden. I made a little cocaine field, taro. I made banana and a little sugarcane plantation. That was my building bridges. It was my way of getting the point across that look what I do. And it really did work because it's something, they're all farmers, a lot of these guys, something they could relate to. So in fact, you wanted to go out and hunt for orchids because you thought, oh, the bridge building isn't going to work. I'm just going to do what I want to do now. Yeah. And it was inadvertently that which actually did build the bridges. That's right. It was deliberate. I mean, I wanted to really go get hunting. Of course I did, and I really wanted to see the flowers and bring plants back and establish a collection around the camp. I had orchids dangling from the commandant's front door. He just hates the plants. He was ripping them off every morning. Stop putting orchids on my front door, he kept saying. It was just amazing. And was he laughing? Um, it, no, I'm laughing now because it's really funny. He was not laughing, you know, pointing a gun at me at the same time. He just, really? Orchids were driving them absolutely mad. Did you find... But, 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 but it worked. But sorry to answer the actual point, but it worked, and I didn't deliberately go out there to sort of build a bridge or whatever. The main point was to see the orchids and flowers, etc., but of course to wear them down and so on. But the underlying feature was to try and persuade them that I was just a gardener. That was the whole point. I wasn't an old worker, CIA, drug bound, which they accused me of for endless times. The story's so random, there's no pattern to wearing them down, wearing them down, we got released. It was very much wearing them down, change of commandante, start all over again. They just can't stand those plants now. They're never going to forget Tom and Paul. Never going to forget us. But they let you go? They did, yeah. December the 10th, they let us go and then stopped... Did they say why? No. Happy Christmas, get us come back, we'll blow your head off. Simple as that. So they said. Yeah. And then we paused and went, right, where do we go, Signor? I'll go this way. And they wait, they said. And they gave all our stuff back. The story's not quite finished, actually, with regards to the ending. Because after six days of getting lost in the jungle, we had to come back for directions <laughs> to the gorilla camp. Tom Hart Dyke. During the nine months Tom was held hostage, he built in his head a garden in the shape of the world. And now he's planted it in the grounds of Lullingston Castle in Kent. That's where we recorded him. It's open to visitors. I started the flute when I was 12. It's my talent. And it's what I am able to give to the world, and it's the way I see the world as well. Wissam Bustani is a Lebanese musician dedicated to building bridges with Israel. Producer Simon Jacobs met him. Tell me about the first time that you used music to reach out to someone who a lot of 
the people around you would say that you shouldn't be playing with them because they're on the other side? Uh, the first time that springs to mind is when I was pretty young, just after college. I was, uh, I suppose, a young professional in London, and I get this call from the manager of the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra. And you're talking in 1983, I think it was, right in the middle of the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. And Beirut was under siege, and my family were in Beirut, and I was here. He said, hello, I'm the manager of the Jerusalem Symphony Orchestra, and we have a concert in the festival hall, and our first flute has had a heart attack. Could you stand in? Well, I said, sure. And before I knew it, as a Lebanese, I was standing up and playing the Israeli anthem. And to have done that as a Lebanese, I didn't think much of it. I could understand that it was bizarre, but I don't think I had the political savvy or worldly view to be able to understand how other people might react to that. When I came back, the BBC World Service wanted to do an interview. And one of the first questions they asked was, what did it feel like to play the Israeli anthem? And I told them, well, I'm privileged to be in a profession that's able to build bridges between people. I think maybe I even used those words exactly. But it was a long answer about why I think music is such a great thing that can bring people together. And they edited it down to, it was a privilege, full stop. And my, everyone at home just went berserk. You know, what are you doing? You know, talking on the BBC, you want to get us killed by our own people? A Jewish relative once told me that no Jew has ever committed a crime. And lately, many in the Arab world have come to imagine it was Jews, not Danes, who planted the cartoons of Muhammad in the Danish newspapers. Nowadays, Wissam goes to synagogues with his flute to try and build bridges between the Arab countries and Israel, which isn't easy because both sides can be nuts. And they're surprised, first of all, that I'm... I suppose clean and not carrying a gun and can talk sense and not be angry. But invariably, the blame game starts in political discussion. You do that. You're not doing this. We did that. We're not capable of doing anything bad. And it raises to fever pitch. And that's when I take my flute out. And in a small situation of, say, 20, 30, 40 people, you can really feel how the atmosphere just warms again and people become calm again. This is where I really see the, the benefit of music. Wissam Bustani. David Liddell of Total Conflict Management is a professional bridge builder. Hello. Dad Simon. I'm John. Are you David? I'm, yes, I am. Hi, I'm Pleased to meet you, John. Hi, Simon. Come <laughs> through. He enters the horrific world of office politics when all else has failed and he mediates. What is a workplace mediator, David? Well, a workplace mediator is someone who helps two or more people involved in a conflict in the workplace. And ultimately, the mediator's role then is to bring the parties together around the table, as we're sat now, help them both identify 
a route forward, something that they can both agree to. So you have to be a listener? Listening is a pretty important part of the, uh, the mediation process, and we encourage the parties as well to listen to one another, and that's often what's gone and vanished in the conflict. David told me of a recent dispute involving two doctors who began to irrationally hate each other. I then met both of the consultants separately, and very interestingly, the younger consultant said to me that at one time, the older consultant walked into the room and the younger consultant said to me he never felt more terrorised or threatened. So I said, you know, what happened? He said, nothing happened, he just walked through the door and I felt my stomach turn. And another case I remember doing, one of the parties said, well, she walks to work with bricks in her stomach. I thought to myself, you know, if you're carrying a laptop and your bag and your car keys and your mobile phone and you've got bricks in your belly, it's a heavy walk to work. So in the midst of this, there is the bridge builder. That person is you. What are you doing? The next step is for the parties to meet around the table. And that can be quite nerve-wracking for people to come around the table and I think shows great courage for anybody. And this is the first time they've spoken for three years about the conflict in their relationships. And what happened with these two consultants? It's interesting in mediation, you kind of almost want to paint this picture of this amazing handshake, big hug, and they're going to be best friends for the rest of time, and it doesn't happen like that. The outcome for them was they'd been together in the room, they understood and they'd heard from each other, and they walked away from it feeling far more positive. There is something about you I feel as if I can open up. Good. <laughs> OK, well, I'm, I wonder why that is. <laughs> well, I, I don't know, but it shows that you're in the right job as a mediator. Yeah. Simon and I tend to not like each other much right. for some reason. I don't quite understand. Would you like a, a little mediation? Maybe, I don't know if we should... <laughs> we hadn't planned to do this. Well, I'll tell you what I'd like to hear from you, Simon, and I want you to be completely and totally honest. OK. Do you ever... And I'm going to put the microphone over here to you. Do you ever feel annoyed or irritated by me? Of course I do, and you know I do. <laughs> you know there's always been little tensions over the last couple of years. Sometimes when you are not in the best frame of mind, you can be quite difficult to work with, but you know that, and I'd be surprised if you wouldn't admit that. No, I don't admit that. I may have been in a bad mood as I walked here this morning, but I think I've been perfectly capable since I've got here. You've certainly cheered up and it's gone very well today, but you know there have been other occasions when there's been... You see, you're looking at me as if... You're not going to admit to what I've just said. Has anything I've ever said upset you? Do you go back and talk to your girlfriend and say, I know something really difficult or horrible to say to me? There may have been an occasion when, yes, there might have been, you know, a couple of moments. You really go home and say to Emily... John Hudson is like, he's a nightmare to work with. No, I don't say that you're a nightmare to work with. I just say that it's been a difficult day. I'm trying to go through this process in a really positive way, and yet you're asking questions that are actually trying to trip me up. I like to think of myself as a genuine bridge builder. Hmm. I always would like to resolve conflict. I never like to get into arguments. John, what are the positives in your... Uh, well, I'm you know? glad that Simon never likes to have arguments, because it, it does mean that... Uh, <laughs> you know, be rude to him and then realise it's not going to come back. I think that's part of the problem. Do you wish you did lose your temper ever? Well, no, because I think it would be counterproductive. I mean, like the time when you were giving up smoking, you were shouting at me on the train on the way to an interview. And did I explain that giving up smoking is very difficult? Exactly. I'm just using an example because I knew that you were in the process of giving up smoking and therefore knew it wasn't worth, you know, it wasn't worth. 
I can assure you that actually Simon didn't mean what he said. And even if he did mean it, it isn't true. John Ronson on Building Bridges was written and presented by John Ronson. The producer was Simon Jacobs and the series producer was Laura Parfit. It was a unique production for BBC Radio 4.